It's interesting that the author of Hebrews decides to use the tabernacle, to bring up the issue of the tabernacle. It's interesting because when he wrote this, of course, the Hebrews, the Jews, would have gone to worship at the temple, not the tabernacle. Now you've got to understand the difference between the temple and the tabernacle. In fact, we need to kind of do some comparisons here. The temple was this, this permanent structure that was first initiated to be built by David. If you remember in 2 Samuel, in fact it should be on the screen, 2 Samuel 7.2, it says that David the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. David, who is God's man, called by God to lead, uh, uh, to lead the nation of Israel as king, anointed by God to be his chosen king. David had built this beautiful home for himself, which was fine for him to do, but he was mourning over the fact, but yeah, but the place of God, the place where God makes himself known, it's in this tent. And so what happens is, Nathan says, oh, David, do whatever you want, but then God says, okay, David, Nathan said, okay, but I didn't. I don't really need you to build me a house, he says. But I'll let you build a house and I'll bless that house because I want to make a covenant with you. Now what we know about the tabernacle was the tabernacle was was instituted not by man, not by a former king, but by God himself several hundred years before. God had said this to Moses as Moses was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt toward the promised land. God says this, Exodus 25. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. For every, from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take an offering. And he names what that offering needs to be, all the materials that he would use for the tabernacle. And he says, and let them make me a sanctuary, notice, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all its furnishings, just uh, so you shall make it. And so, There's a difference between the tabernacle and the temple. It's it's a really important difference. The temple came at the initiation of man. God blessed it. God used it. But it came at the initiation of man. But the tabernacle came at the initiation of God. God initiated the tabernacle. God says, I want this tabernacle made. And He says, why? I want this thing made according to my specs so I can be with my people. God wanted to dwell with His people. That's why He commanded the tabernacle to be made. This is why I believe the author of Hebrews is bringing up this issue of the tabernacle. Of course, the whole theme of Hebrews is Jesus is better. That what Jesus brings, who Jesus is, is better than all the things that we had in the Old Covenant. Therefore, the author of Hebrews wants to encourage the Hebrew Christians not to go back to Judaism, but to continue on with Jesus. And so here he says, look, let's talk about the tabernacle. Not the temple that you think is so awesome, but the tabernacle, that which God initiated. And let's see what that tells us about this Jesus. And so basically what I want to do is, is, is again, as I did last week, kind of give you three basic things that we want to learn that I believe the author wants to show us uh, and about the tabernacle, but then really focus mostly on the last bit. And so first what we see here, in the first few verses is that the, the, the description of the tabernacle itself actually points to Jesus. Notice he says in verse 1, he says, Even this first covenant had ordinances of divine service and earthly sanctuary. He says in verse 2, For a tabernacle was prepared. And he talks about the fact that this tabernacle has two parts. He says the first part is this. 
He says in the first part, there was a lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary or literally the holy place. Now, on the screen, there should be an image of the tabernacle. Is it there? Yes, it's there. Good. I don't know if you can read the writing, but if you can read the writing, you can read the small print. You notice that this place was not very big. It was basically uh, sort of tent curtains, maybe about 15 feet high, surrounding a tent that was maybe, you know, well, very not, not very big at all. In fact, the entire tabernacle structure could probably almost fit in this room. It would be kind of sideways, but it could probably fit in this room. It wasn't a big, impressive structure, really. But God had some things that He specifically wanted done. Now, it's interesting, there was two kind of sections. So you see on the, on the diagram, there's the kind of outside curtain, Yes. So inside the outside curtain, that's just kind of the, the, the place where a fellowship, the priest could go in there and minister, people could bring their sacrifices into that outside curtain, at least the men could. But then you see inside that, of course, is the, is the holy place itself, or the, the tabernacle itself. And that tabernacle, as you can see, had two sections. The front smaller section is what he's referring to here that he calls the sanctuary, or the holy place. Now that is where it had different sort of furnishings that were meant for the priest to minister. And these furnishings, well, they represent different things. And, and I just want to agree with the author of Hebrews where he says in verse 5, of these things we cannot now speak in detail because it would take too long to get into this. And that's not really the point of the author of Hebrews anyway. But I do want you to notice this. You have this first part of the tabernacle, this place that's called the, the holy place. Or prepared tabernacle. And this really reminds us of the, the humanity of Jesus. We're going to read next week when we get into, uh, into Hebrews chapter 10. That the author of Hebrews will quote Psalm 40. And he'll add this phrase in verse 5. Notice it says, But a body you have prepared for me. Speaking of the incarnation of Christ. Now listen, the scripture says this in John chapter 1. It says, this is speaking of Jesus, right? It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So there's something about the tabernacle itself, the fact that it is a tabernacle, that the authors of the New Testament connected Jesus himself. That, that when, when God takes on flesh, when the Word becomes flesh, we see that in Jesus. We see the very tabernacle of God. Interesting too, in that first part, all the Levites, all the priests could go into that first part in turn and do their ministry. It was, it was a, a picture of this constant ministry of the priesthood. And of course, Jesus and His humanity showed that. We see, we've been talking about this in Hebrews, right? That Jesus and His humanity is the perfect high priest. That He shows us what, what that priesthood, uh, how that priesthood is actually meant to be. But also, listen. In verse 3 it says, And behind the second veil, now He gets into that second part of the tabernacle. He says, Behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. Literally in Greek there, it's the holy, holy. The holiest of all. He says, which have the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, uh, the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that, uh, Aaron's rod that had budded, and the ta- uh, tablets of the co- uh, covenant. That is the Ten Commandments. Now it's interesting, and we could get into this, but we won't take too much time, but it's interesting how each one of these things says something about the understanding of the author about the tabernacle. And there's all kinds of interesting historical things here that 
Again, we won't get into, but I'll just kind of whet your appetite if you want to look into these yourself later. Just the idea that the fact that there's no place in the Scripture that actually mentions Aaron's rod that budded it being kept inside, uh, inside the Ark of the Covenant. It's not actually mentioned. But that's what the rabbis taught. And it could be a situation that that's actually what was the case, but that was something that had been gotten, forgotten or lost. Also, the fact that there's this golden pot of manna, uh, it never says in Scripture that's actually a golden pot. So, but it's interesting that that's what it would be seen as, as something that valuable. Now, all this to say, <coughs> there's something about the holiest of all that says something, especially what we see in verse 5. It says, and above it, above the Ark of the Covenant, right, were the cherubim, this, these would be sort of angels, and don't think fat little babies with wings, think, you know, powerful, mighty, scary beings, okay? These are angels, okay? Their glory is overshadowing the mercy seat. And the idea there is that this is the holy place. This is the very presence of God. Now, here's what's interesting. If the first part of the tabernacle, the tabernacle as a whole kind of shows us something about Jesus' humanity. It's a place prepared for God's presence, Okay? The holiest of all shows us something about Jesus' deity. That with Jesus himself, just like with the tabernacle itself, the very presence of God would dwell. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 14. Listen, right before he's going to be crucified, that night, one of his disciples says, Jesus, we just want to see the Father. We want to experience the presence of God for ourselves. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long? And you have not, uh, you have yet, And yet you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. This is one of the the, the clearest affirmations that Jesus makes of his own deity. The fact that he is the, the, the direct reflection. He is the exact representation of God the Father. The very presence of God was with them. They're wanting to experience the presence that only the high priest experienced once a year. But without the fear. That's what they wanted. And Jesus is going, don't you realize you've been experiencing this the whole time? (laughs) Every time I've been with you, you've been experiencing this the whole time. So the the thing is, the tabernacle itself, and this is what I think one of the reasons the author of Hebrews brings this up. The tabernacle itself points to Jesus. How it's described points to Jesus himself. Now what what was the purpose? Look at verse 6. Because the purpose of the tabernacle also points to Jesus. It says... Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, notice, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and also for the people's uh, sins. Notice it says, committed in ignorance. Now, This is referring to what the Old Testament calls the Day of Atonement, or what is on the, you can see on your calendars today, the Jewish holiday, Yom Kippur. And it's this idea of that they already had these sacrifices. God had commanded in His law certain sacrifices that needed to come when people sinned. So people knew they sinned against God. They would see, they'd go to the priest, what's the law demand that my sins can be atoned for? He would say, okay, for that sin, it requires this kind of sacrifice. And they would have this certain sacrifice and that would atone for their known sins. Alright? But on this one day of the year, Yom Kippur, this is when the high priest only, not any priest, but only the high priest, could enter to the holiest place. This is the only time anybody could go into that second part of the tabernacle. 
And the high priest would go in there, and basically first actually what he'd do is he'd get this, this spotless animal, this perfect sacrifice was made. They would gather the blood of this perfect sacrifice, and that high priest would go with fear and trepidation into the holy place of God, and he would sprinkle that blood on the, ta- on the Ark of the Covenant, on that place where the, the law was, on that golden covered box that um, was the place where God would actually uh, reveal himself. And he would, he would spread the blood there. And it was, it was a picture of this sort of coming in and making atonement for things that they, had, they weren't sure that they had even done or not. Now here's the idea. The idea is, is that atonement can't just be made for things that we recognize. In other words, we don't just need atonement or forgiveness for the sins that we recognize. We need atonement and, and forgiveness for things that we have no idea we do. In fact, the idea here is it's, it's meant to, listen, it, it confronts, the tabernacle and its purpose confronted our inherent sinfulness. The fact that we don't just kind of choose to sin like, oh yeah, I know this is right, but you know what, I'm going to do the wrong thing. And they go, oh, that was bad. Sorry about that, God. It's not just that. It's just that our whole nature our whole temperament, our whole being is bent towards that rebellion. We hate God by nature. We want nothing to do with God by nature. And so what happens is all the time, even without us knowing it, we're sinning against God. In our attitudes, in our actions, in our thoughts, we're doing things that fall short of the glory of God, that fall short of God's standard for us. And those things, even if we don't know that we've done them, need atoning. That's the point. Now this is important because this is the purpose of the uh, the purpose of the tabernacle was show, to show the holiness of God and the inherent sinfulness of man. Now, this whole idea about the fact that we are inherently sinful, this whole idea of, of, of the fact that every aspect of our being has been tainted by our sinfulness, by our brokenness, is something that the Apostle Paul really unpacks in the book of Romans. In fact, from about Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, he wants to unpack the seriousness of our sin before God and our absolute need for a Savior. And he kind of closes off the section by saying this. I'm going to read this section to you. It should be on the screen from the New Living Translation because I like the way it kind of brings some freshness to it. This is basically the Apostle Paul quoting several different Old Testament uh, scriptures, putting them together to make one point. Here's what he says. As the scripture says, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. That's how the scripture sums up our human nature Before we come to Christ. We are utterly. In every aspect of our being. Broken. We don't want God. Now some of you might be sitting here going. You know I don't think I'm that bad. I don't rush to murder. Let me ask you a real serious question. Have you ever judged somebody. Before you know all the facts about them. Have you ever judged somebody. And kind of hated them. You wish they were far from you. Any of you walk down the street and you saw a homeless person stumbling around and you think, oh, get away from that person. You grab your kids, look out, honey, they're dangerous. 
Ever done that? Because the Bible says if you've hated someone in your heart, Jesus says you've murdered in your heart. See, one of the problems that we have is we don't want to see that we are as bad as we actually are. This is why we don't see God as good as He actually is. We don't understand the great grace that He's actually shown us. Because we think we're really not that bad. Even as believers, we forget this. As believers, we forget that the only reason we've come to God at all is because God has drawn us to Himself. God has got our attention. God has said, listen, you've got a choice to make. Do you want me or do you not? If God wouldn't have got our attention and made us, confronted us with that choice, whether it was through the preaching uh, from a pulpit or your parents or your own Bible reading or whatever it was, if God would not have confronted us with that reality, you need a Savior. You would have been completely ignorant of your sinfulness and you would have gone your own way. That's a fact. Maybe you're here this morning and this is the first time it's ever even been brought to your attention. And you find it a little bit offensive. How dare you say that I'm that bad? Hey, I'm saying we're all that bad. And I think if you would be honest with yourself, you would recognize, yeah, you know what? I am that bad. One of the things that I've experienced in being a Christian for 29 years, I think it is now, is that the the closer I get to this God who is love, and He is love, make no doubt about it, the more I realize how unloving I am. I actually hate people. I really do. Sometimes I hate you guys. Sorry. It's just true. I hate people sometimes. And I definitely hate God. Apart from His work in my life. There are times, guys, this might be hard for you to hear a pastor say, but there are times as a pastor I just think, you know what? I want to just chuck this all aside and forget it. This is ridiculous. How can there be a God who's as good as the Bible says? I feel that sometimes as a pastor... But you know why I feel that? I feel that because this God doesn't do what I want Him to do. Not because He treats me bad. Not because He hasn't kept His word. There's a natural hatred that we have that remains there unless God does something in us. The tabernacle was to point that out to these people. The tabernacle was there to point out to people their inherent sinfulness. In fact, look what it says in verse 8. The author says this. He says, The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. In other words, listen, the author is saying that this whole tabernacle was meant to be an object lesson for the Holy Spirit. It was what the Holy Spirit, as 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 God, the Holy Spirit, by the way, is God the Spirit. He's a person, not an it or a force. In other words, when God starts to try to get our attention by His Spirit, he would, he would have, in the Jews' time, used the tabernacle to say, okay, do you get this? And the first thing He wanted them to see was this. Listen, this fact, this reality that only one man, only the high priest, could go into the presence of God only one time a year, and he could not go there without a blood of sacrifice to atone for all the sins done in ignorance, that that says something. It says this, listen, you need something else. To enter into God's presence. Because even this tabernacle isn't enough. You need something else. That's what the Holy Spirit was wanting to say to these people. That's what the Holy Spirit's wanting to say to us. You need something else. You need something else than this religious duty. It's not going to ever bring you into God's presence. 
But also look at, look at verse 9. It says, It was also symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered. Look what he says about the gifts and sacrifices. These gifts and sacrifices which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regards to conscience. Now notice it says in verse 10, it refers to these things like food and drinks, various washings, and he says, and fleshly ordinances. Fleshly ordinances have to do with the things that aren't of the flesh or our sinful nature, but things that are of the outside, in other words, of, uh, of ceremony. In other words, what the author is saying here is that uh, the sacrifices that were commanded to be offered at the tabernacle, those things could only deal with our ceremonial uncleanness. They couldn't actually remove the guilt. Again, this is supposed to be an object lesson for the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and say to us, listen, you need something else to remove the guilt. The the sacrifices made in the tabernacle are not enough. You need something else. Yom Kippur, as it happened in the Old Testament, is not enough. You need something else. If you want your guilt to be removed, if you want access into God's presence, something else needs to be there. Do you remember when there was this, who we now call the rich young ruler? There was this young man who was probably quite wealthy, who was quite respectable, and he came to Jesus. You guys remember the story? He comes to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what good thing must I do? What good thing must I do to be have eternal life? And Jesus says to him, you know, first he says, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. But then he says to him, he says, well, you know the commandments. And he kind of, Jesus rattles off the commandments that have to do with how we relate to one another, how we love one another. You know, you shall not steal, you shall not murder, you shall not bear false witness, so on and so forth. Honor your parents. And Jesus rattles us off. And this young man says this, listen to this. In Matthew chapter 19. The young man says, All these commandments I have kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? What do I still lack? I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. What do I still lack? And maybe that's exactly how you feel right now. You feel that lack. You go, look, I'm doing a good thing. I'm trying to be a good spouse. I'm trying to be a good parent. I'm trying to be a good student. I'm trying to be a good employee. And I still lack. What do you want from me, God? What do I still lack? When am I going to know that my guilt's been removed? When am I going to know that you're actually with me? What do I still lack? See, that's the purpose of the tabernacle. It was to get us to a place, it was to get the Jews to a place where they said, what do I still lack? That's the purpose of God's law. It was to get us to a place where we thought, I lack, I I." I I want to be near God, but I can't. I'll be dead if I go near God. I want to have my guilt removed, but I can't. At best, it's covered up so God doesn't kill me. And what's interesting to me is that the author he was, is writing this to Christians. Because just like the Hebrew Christians, we can be tempted to try to relate to God by our own religious efforts. It's believing a lie that we could call the Jesus plus religion lie. Okay, I gotta believe in Jesus, or I can't get I can't be approach God, I can't really worship, I can't experience God unless I come to God uh, through Jesus. And 
I pray like this, or I, I wear these clothes, or I come to this service, or I have this person pray with me, or you fill in the blank. It's Jesus plus something else. Do you realize, guys, listen, God gives this tabernacle to show these guys, look, you need something else, not Jesus and something else. The something else you need is Jesus. It's a someone else. Now, in these last four verses, or five verses, really, really want to focus, and where really we see that this greater, more perfect tabernacle, it actually, it actually comes with Jesus. What does it say in verse 11? But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Notice it says, not made with hands. In other words, this is not talking about what was formed by the commandments of Exodus 25. Not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. In other words, when Jesus came, Jesus came so that we could be in the very tabernacle of heaven. You guys, if you were here with us last week, you remember last week we talked about um, we talked about how God was really clear that the tabernacle had to be built according to the pattern. We read it again today. God says, this is the pattern I want and you need to keep to this exact pattern. Because the pattern points to a greater reality. So that the, the tabernacle is meant to be a symbol or a shadow of a greater reality that is actually in heaven. It's the idea that there's this dwelling place in the very presence of God. The holiest of holy place where God in His holiness dwells. Now, what the, what the author is saying here is that when Christ came, He comes with that tabernacle. In a sense, He brings it with Him and He brings us to it. This is interesting. Because what He's talking about here is a reality that... that This is a greater and more perfect. Greater being it's better in scope. It's better in application. More perfect being completely complete. You can't get perfect, more perfect than more perfect. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) It's as complete as it can be. Now here's what's interesting. Jesus says this in John chapter 14. You guys probably know these verses, right? John chapter 14. And I'm reading from the NIV because I like the way it says it. John chapter 14, Jesus says to his disciples, again, right before he's going to be crucified, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. He's told them he's going to go away. And they're worried about this. They don't want Jesus to leave. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Listen, you believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you, I would, uh, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, he says, I will come back and take you with me that you also may be where I am. Now, I've heard people preach from this text and talk about, you know, if God made the world in six days, how amazing is heaven going to be if if Jesus has been taking 2,000 years to prepare a place in heaven? Guys, it's not like heaven needed to be sort of, you know, redecorated or something. When he says, I go to prepare a place for you, it's not the place that needs to be prepared. It's us that need to be prepared for the place. You see, here's here's the reality. If Jesus is that tabernacle and God dwells with him, where do we need to be if we want to dwell with God? In Jesus. In Christ. 
We need to be in so union with Jesus that he uh, and us are indistinguishable. That we have the same nature as Christ. That we are joined with Christ. So when Jesus says in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. He's talking about this reality that he goes where? To the cross. And he dies a death that pays the price for me and you. And he doesn't stay dead. As he predicts, three days later, what does he do? He rises from the dead. And after he rises from the dead, he spends 40 days speaking of the kingdom of God to his disciples, showing himself to up to 500 people at once. Then what does he do? He ascends into heaven. He ascends into the holiest place. Remember we said earlier in describing the tabernacle that the high priest, when he go once a year, he didn't go into that holy place without blood. In other words, the animal that was sacrificed, the perfect sacrifice was made on the outside, and he carries the, bud of the, the bowl of blood into the holiest place and offers it there. Jesus ascends into heaven. What does he take with him? His own sacrifice. Now listen. The Bible's teaching us here. Jesus was trying to teach his disciples here. That, that, that in, in him being the prepared sacrifice. And him making a way that through faith we can be united with him. That we get to what? Go right into the holy place. Not, not just get to go in there. Not just like once a year we can all get to go. Not just the high priest now we all get to go in. Not just once a week when we come to church or worship. Every moment of every day we have access to the very holy of holies. It's a permanent dwelling. This is why, listen, the author says this, this what comes with Jesus is the greater and more perfect tabernacle. That dwelling place with God is there perfectly and permanently for those of us who are in Christ. He goes on to say, verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place. Notice it says, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. That's the picture we just said, isn't it? He ascends into heaven with his own sacrifice. And in doing so, God doesn't say, okay, that's good enough for another year. God says, that is eternally enough. That's enough for eternal redemption. Can you see why it's so wrong? Why it's so really blasphemous for us to say, okay, yeah, I need Jesus, but I need Jesus and something else. Because when we say I need Jesus and something else, we are saying that that blood he took in there wasn't good enough. It didn't purchase our eternal redemption. That's what we're saying. When we approach God thinking I need Jesus and something else, that's what we are saying. And that's why Jesus is saying don't do it. That's why the author is saying don't do it. He's saying, don't you understand when he entered, he entered once for all. One for all people for all time. That's the idea. It's done. Listen, the author of uh, Peter says this. One Peter says this. Peter writes, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by traditions from your fathers. But with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Do you see the contrast? You were not redeemed with corruptible things. So what's the, what's the idea? What's the implication? 
you were redeemed with incorruptible things. What's incorruptible? What never wears out? What never perishes? The work of Jesus, the blood of Christ. This is what the author is trying to say. See, guys, listen. Jesus provides a permanent dwelling place, and a permanent dwelling place is much greater than a temporary meeting place where only one guy goes in once a year. And what Jesus does on the cross is not just cover up our sins. That's what the animal sacrifices did. That's what even the, 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 the Day of Atonement did. It just covered up the sins done in ignorance, the sins even unknown, but only for one year. And only if that high priest was worthy. And only if the sacrifice was correct. Only for one year. But when Jesus goes in, what does he do? He doesn't just kind of cover up our debts. You know what he does? He absorbs them. Now, we, we get sin when it comes to this idea of we sin against each other, right? I mean, if, if any of you here value relationships, you have a general understanding of sin, even if you're not a Christian. You understand that when people do things that are unjust, it's sin. Like, you know, you know when, when a, a person, you know, when a president of a bank, you know, is corrupt and he rips off hundreds of thousands of people, you see he sinned against those people, you get that. And so you think it's those people that have been sinned against. It's those people who should be able to demand a ransom from that man. We get that's the sense of justice that we have. But we forget that we've been created by a God who's given us every good and precious gift. And when we sin, we don't just sin against each other. We sin against that God who says, don't sin. We sin against Him, and He has a right to say, here's the ransom that I require. But that puts us in this hard place, because what He requires, we can't pay. We are indebted to this God, not just because we've sinned sometime in our life, but we continue to sin against God every day. So how could we ever approach this God? How could we ever hope that we wouldn't be judged by this God, let alone ever enter into His presence and enjoy it? How can we know? Because he doesn't just cover up our debt and say, we all forget about that for now. Just try better. He absorbs it. Isn't that what we have to do when we forgive each other? When someone sins against you and there's no way they can pay you back for what they've done and they say, would you forgive me? All you can do is choose to either say, no, I don't want to absorb that I want to squeeze it out of me and take it out against you. Or you can say, I forgive you and absorb it. When Jesus offered himself as that sacrifice, he was absorbing the sins of the world, the sinfulness of mankind. So that he could look at us and not just say, your sins are covered, but your sins are forgiven. They are not between you and God anymore. That I have, as God the Son, taken them on myself. So there is nothing now that separates you from God. And he goes on to say in verse 14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I love this because... It's this argument from the lesser to the greater. Okay, listen. He says, in verse 13 he had said, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifers, in other words, if all these kind of commanded 
sacrifices of the Old Testament, if they could kind of cover up your sin, if they could sort of uh, ceremonially make you clean so at least you could worship God and know He would accept the worship. If, if that's good enough for that, how much more is the blood of Christ sufficient to cleanse your conscience from dead works, to actually remove the guilt? You know when you, you sin and you know you've really sinned, when maybe, maybe it's something you've, you've been in the habit of doing and you know it's wrong, but you don't deal with it, and then you finally come to the place where you know I really got to deal with this. And you go before God and you say, God, I, I need forgiveness. I've really messed up. Please cleanse me. And you confess your sins. And you know in your head what the Bible says. You, you know the Bible says, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and He's just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But you still feel guilty. Anybody here ever had that experience? Hello. We all have that experience, don't we? You know what that really is? Seriously. You know what this is? I have this all the time. You know what it is? It's us not believing that what he did was enough. That's really what it is. It's unbelief. Because God doesn't want to just say, I've covered up your sin. He wants to remove your guilt. He wants you to know your guilt's been removed. Now, listen, we're talking about dealing with this lie. This lie of Jesus plus religion. There's another lie. Jesus minus repentance. That's next week. (laughs) But this lie, we have to deal with one lie at a time. And this lie of Jesus plus religion, it keeps us as believers from moving forward. It was keeping the Hebrew Christians from pressing on when things were getting difficult. Because they still messed up. And they didn't even have the support of their Hebrew brothers and sisters around them because those that weren't Christians thought that they were off and deceived and dangerous. And Jesus, or the author here is trying to say, listen, Jesus is enough. He's going to cleanse your conscience. I love this too. He says he can cleanse your conscience from dead works. That is, from trying to do works that atone for your sin. They're dead. They don't do anything. They actually don't have any effect. So, no offense to, to you if you have a Catholic background, but if you have a Catholic background, you know what I mean by this. You go to see the priest, you confess your sins, he says, he, he pronounces you forgiven, but you also have to what? Say ten Hail Marys or seven Our Fathers, whatever the case might be. Why? Well, it might not be enough just to know you're forgiven. And this will help your conscience. But what does the scripture say? It's not your works that cleanse your conscience. That's, those are dead works. If you're trying to work to, to, to earn a right standing or forgiveness from God, those are dead works. And the Bible says he wants to cleanse you from those dead works. Instead, what he wants to do is bring you to a place where you serve the living God. This is what we saw in Titus. Remember this at family camp a couple weeks ago? Jesus, it says, Titus 2.14, Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself, his own special people who are zealous for good works. How does that happen? How do we say, okay, God, I know I fall short. Uh, I, I know that I need your cleansing. I just receive your cleansing, but I'm afraid to move because I don't want to blow it again. I like just being in this place where I stay clean. Do you understand what the grace of God gives you? The grace of God gives you the ability to love God recklessly. 
You don't have to be so cautious and worried. I'm going to get it wrong. You're going to get it wrong. Guess what? The blood of Christ cleanses your conscience. So what do you do? You do what Jesus did. How did Jesus serve the living God? How did God the Son serve God the Father? It says it right there in verse 14. Who through the eternal spirit. How do you say, God, I just need to pick up my cross and deny myself and follow you. Jesus, I just need to fall after you. How do I do that? By the same Holy Spirit that Jesus did it by. How do I know the Holy Spirit's in me and he's going to do this work? Because Jesus has provided for you to be cleansed. To be completely and eternally clean, which qualifies you to be a vessel fit for honor, full of the Holy Spirit, ready for every good work. See, here's the thing. A lot of times we do this, and I hope we're seeing this as we go through Hebrews. We relate to God as if we are under an old covenant. We relate to God as if He'll only relate to us based on what we do. Not based on what Jesus has done. And, and, we, and we believe this lie. Instead of understanding, wait a second. I already dwell by faith in the greater and more perfect tabernacle. His name is Jesus. I already dwell with him. I just need to walk with him. And I can walk with him because he's given me his eternal spirit. I can be zealous for good works. Why? Because I know I'm accepted in the beloved. I can be zealous for good works. Because why? Because I know that He will give me the strength to do those good works. Stop relating to God by your sin. You have enough faith to believe you're a sinner. Have enough faith to believe you're forgiven. Have enough faith to believe you're accepted. Have enough faith to believe you're a vessel of the Holy Spirit. And let that faith be solely and completely and only in Jesus. Here's how the book ends. Not just the book of Hebrews, the whole scripture. Listen to this. Revelation 21. It says, it'll be on the screen. It says, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And notice God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Guys, listen, we live in this tension of the already and not yet. We are already those who dwell positionally in the tabernacle of God and we're not yet there where we can experience that fully. But because we're already there, we need to live that way. Because we know we're going to be there fully. That's how the book ends. This is how how it ends. God told us the end. We know what's going to happen. We're going to be in a place where God himself is going to wipe the very tears from your eyes. There won't be a dry eye in the place because when we face God, we're all going to realize, Lord, I should have trusted you more. I should have been more bold, more faithful. And God's going to say, no more regrets. Wash those all away. 
You're with me now. This is why I sent my son. You are now completely conformed to his image and we can now have the same fellowship that he and I have had for eternity. We can dwell together. This is what he's done.